Good morning, my name is Steve-O. I would like to invite you to pray with me for the reading of the scripture. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for speaking to us, and for loving us. I pray that you would pour out your love upon us this morning so that we may see your beauty. Uh, we pray for Pastor Chris as he reads from the book of James. We ask that you would give him grace, the humility, the words, that guide his words so that we might be able to see and hear your beauty. Help us to respond. Without you, we are dead, we are lifeless, we are lost. As so we ask you, let, let us see Jesus, and we may fall at your feet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The reading from this morning comes from the book of James, chapter 4, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 6. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will... We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted And moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Steve L. You know, um... So through Thanksgiving, we're learning from the book of James. James is a letter written by uh, one of Jesus' closest followers. We think it was his brother. And he's really addressing the question, how do I grow in my faith? How do I grow uh, into a more mature Christian faith? So how do I be, instead of being a baby Christian or a toddler Christian who kind of stumbles along, uh, how do I become someone who's firmly planted? And I said a couple weeks ago, we took a break from James and we picked it up a couple weeks ago and we're finishing and I said, I'm really, part of me is really not looking forward to finishing uh, these last sections of James. If you're wondering why, did you hear what Steve-O read? (laughs) Um, Now you know. Um, James uses some very strong language, and he uses strong language throughout uh, his letter, but we see it most evidently, uh, maybe he reserves the strongest language for last, And there are probably a number of reasons he does this. Some of it is contextual, by the way, so some of it has to do with translation. Um, You just, different cultures hear things differently. 
Uh, sometimes, you know, the only way to wake up somebody who is soundly and deeply asleep is to shout. You ever tried to wake somebody up and they were so deep asleep that you, saying their name wasn't enough? Um, so I, ho- I hope what you'll see through all of this is that James is not being mean-spirited. He is not being oppressive or unfair. You, you might say um, he's trying to wake us up. He's trying to wake us up. We've seen uh, over the past few weeks that, I mean, in some ways, so um, James is all about spiritual maturity. The word he uses for that is wisdom. And we've seen over the past few weeks that probably the number one indicator of somebody who is wise is that they are humble. Wisdom inevitably leads to humility. You, you can't have humility without, true humility, without wisdom. And when you have wisdom, you inevitably get humility. The mature Christian, the wise Christian, is deeply humble. And we've seen that over the past couple of weeks. This morning, you might, we might look at it this way. James is trying to shake us awake from the lack of humility in our lives. And you might be thinking, well, I'm, I'm probably pretty, or, or my, maybe let's put it in stronger language. Maybe we might say James is trying to shake us awake from the arrogance in our lives. And that's stronger language, and maybe a lot of us think, well, I'm not, I'm not arrogant, come on. And, and maybe, maybe that's where James would say, see, I rest my case. I rest my case. We don't even necessarily see ourselves that um, objectively. And so he's shaking us awake from the subtle arrogance in our lives that we're constantly tempted towards. He does it in two different ways. Now, there are two kind of chunks that we're covering today. You could cover them separately. You could cover them together. Um, I think it's appropriate to cover them together for a couple reasons. I've said before that if you want to know what really matters in somebody's life, look at two things. Look at their calendar and look at their credit card statement. Look at the way they spend their time and look at the way they spend their money. And in these two sections, James really addresses how do we spend our time and how do we spend our money? And are we doing so in ways that are self-serving or that are self-giving? So that's kind of the structure that we're going to look at, the little check- section at the end of chapter 4 that's really about how we spend our time, and then the section in the beginning of chapter 5, which is really about how we spend our money. Now, if we start with uh, the first section, you know, the, verse 13, this is in your program, or if you have your Bible open, James starts this way. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow will go to this or that city and will spend a year there, will carry on business, will make money, will earn a profit. It'd be easy if you just kind of skimmed over this to think that James is criticizing long-term planning. He's not. Uh, All over the rest of Scripture, especially in Proverbs, we read about the importance of long-term planning. James is also not criticizing making a profit. He's not criticizing making a profit. You might consider that even his brother Jesus, we know, was a carpenter before he began his ministry and probably needed to earn a profit to put food on his table. We know that several of Jesus' followers were actually very, very successful merchants. They were very wealthy. And they used their wealth to enable Jesus' ministry. Even Paul, the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, What did he do? He had a side hustle, sewing tents, so that he could fund his ministry. So the problem isn't planning, and the problem isn't earning a profit. James tells us the problem, actually, in verse 16. Look at verse 16. He says, as it is, you boast 
and you brag. And we know from the context that what they're really boasting in is their autonomy. Look what I'm going to do. Here are my plans. I'm going to go. We're going to go. And we're going to go do this. And we're going to spend a year and make a profit. They're boasting really in their freedom and in their independence. What James asks us to consider is this. Is it possible that we become so focused on our own plans for our life that we don't consider to ask, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? This kind of hasty speed, there's an author named Robert Wall, and he very cleverly called this the peril of great price. Do we ask, what is my will for my life or what is God's will for my life? And I should mention, the two are not always in conflict. Uh, Psalm 37 um, has one of my favorite verses uh, that indicates that actually the more we're filled with God's spirit, God puts his desire in us. And then our, our, our desires become God's desire. So it's not as if to say every single thing you do is wrong. He's not saying that. But how many times does it not even cross our minds to ask God about something, whatever? Any decision, any decision we make, a big decision or a small decision, doesn't even occur to think, maybe I should, maybe I should pray about this. Maybe I should ask some wise and trusted counselors about this. And I think here, this might be kind of the crux, and I just started to notice this this morning, actually. So I wish I I could have spent more time on this. Prayer and asking people's advice forces us to slow down. How often have you gotten an idea in your mind and it becomes so important to do it that just, bam, you just do it right then and there, right? Right? But sometimes it seems as if God is saying, hey, pump the brakes a little bit, slow down. What's the rush? And believe me, I'm preaching to myself here too. What's the rush? It's it's possible, I think this is what James is getting at, it is possible to move so quickly that we outpace the Holy Spirit and leave him in the dust. And then when we look around, we're surprised that he's not there. But God almost always works more slowly than we would like him to work. There was a Japanese theologian named uh, Kosuke Koyama, and he wrote a book. Uh, the title kind of gives the whole thing away. It's called The Three-Mile-An-Hour God. The Three-Mile-An-Hour God. What does that mean? Well, as it turns out, the average human walks about three miles an hour. And how did Jesus get from place to place during his time on earth? Do you ever think about this, that it was actually very inefficient for Jesus to come when he came? I mean, he, there were efficiencies, and, and it was during the time of the Roman roads, and we think God sovereignly is working through history, but shouldn't Jesus have come now? Wait an extra couple thousand years when you have the internet and you've got jets. I mean, Jesus was, his whole ministry was localized to a tiny area of a handful of square miles. He could have been global if he had come today. Why didn't he? Why didn't he? With all the social media and the technology and the transportation that we have, why did Jesus choose to come then? And why not now? Maybe because God knows that to be effective is not the same as to be quick. That Jesus was willing, God was willing to become human and limit himself to a pace of three miles an hour 
And yet, one might argue, it worked. He didn't have to move fast. God almost always works more slowly than we would like, which is why he so often has to call us to patience, to say, slow down. This is why that that refrain, that phrase in the Psalms, we see it over and over, wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage and wait upon the Lord. That's Psalm 27. Excuse me, Psalm 27. You know, in a world that considers waiting and slowness and patience to be signs of weakness, God reassures us that waiting and patience is actually a sign of greater strength. He says, be strong and wait. And I think, the reason I think this is what James is starting to get at, and I never really noticed this, but look at verse 13 again. He says, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city. Today, or tomorrow, who makes long-term, who makes year-long plans and leaves for a year-long trip with one day's notice? I, now, I, I think what's probably going on is James is speaking in hyperbole. Like, nobody does that. And probably in ancient cultures, nobody did that quite like that. But you get the idea, right? He's saying, you get this idea and you just go after it without taking the time to slow down and to ask the Lord and to ask some wise, trusted counselors Is this wise? Does this make sense? Jesus was once asked, "Uh, Teacher, what's the greatest command? And Jesus responded, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I wonder if in these two chunks of James, he's in some ways fleshing out those two greatest commands that one of the ways we demonstrate that we love God with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength is to invite him into every part of our lives, which forces us to slow down and to listen for the Holy Spirit and to ask wise people in our lives, do you see red flags? What am I missing? In other words, James is really, he's kind of asking us, if we give no time to discerning what God wills, if we practice no patience devoted to prayer, is that really any indication that we do love God with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength? James challenges us to to examine our calendars. How do we spend our time and what does that show about our heart? Secondly, he asks us to examine our credit card statement. Now, we're going we're gonna to keep this at more of a kind of high level this morning. There's just, again, there's not time. I've, it's a, this is a big bite of scripture, I know. But look at the next section. So this is chapter 5. This is verses 1 through 6. Now, explicitly, James is addressing people who are wealthy. He says it. Listen, you who are wealthy, listen to me very directly. But don't think you get a pass just because you don't think you're wealthy. For a couple of reasons, but one of the, one of the primary ways is because um, most of us, even somebody who is relatively poor by today's standards, probably would have been considered very wealthy by ancient standards. By some estimates, 90% of people in the ancient Roman world lived in what we would consider poverty today. So most of us are probably more wealthy than what we like to let on. Not to mention, none of us, like, none of us is going to admit to being wealthy. That's just not... That's not something we do. 
And notice what James is saying, and notice what he's not saying again. Now, first, he's not saying wealth is wrong. He never says it's wrong or it's a sin to be wealthy. But he does point out that wealth is dangerous. Wealth is dangerous. Why? Maybe most importantly, because the more we have, the more we stand to lose. And we're loss-averse, right? Nobody likes to lose anything. If you have any investments in the stock market, you have not liked the past couple of months. Why? Because you've probably lost money. And if you haven't lost money, talk to me afterwards and tell me how. We will go to great lengths to avoid losing what we have. And in that effort to not lose something, we find ourselves prioritizing self-preservation over the preservation of others. The exact example James gives is of wealthy people who, who are employers. They have employees, people who work for them, and they haven't paid them their fair due. What is that? That's prioritizing their own well-being and self-preservation over the preservation of others. But even in that, we can see that James allows that wealth itself can be used for incredible good. It can be used for incredible good. If you're wealthy and you own a business and you employ people and you help them put food on the table for their family, praise God, that's a good thing. The problem isn't in the thing itself, but it's in how we use it. The problem isn't in being wealthy, James says. It's when our focus becomes solely on preserving what we have. This is what he gets at in verse 3. He says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now, hoarding, again, is a strong word, I know, and James is full of strong words in these last couple of chapters. But in essence, he's saying, you've looked out for yourself so much that you've forgotten to look out for others, especially those who who just aren't able to look out for themselves in certain ways that we enjoy. Now you might be thinking, okay, but I'm not, I'm not, I don't consider myself wealthy and I don't hoard my wealth, certainly. What do I, how does this apply to me? That's, that's really not the point. If we dig just a little deeper, what James is really inviting us is to consider is how do I use my wealth, however much or however little I have, it really doesn't matter how much. That's not even the question. That's missing the point. The question he's asking is, is, how do I use whatever it is that I have? And what's the direction? What's the vector of it? Am I using it primarily or exclusively on myself? Or am I approaching wealth with an attitude of doing as much good as I can? As I can. Now, there's, there's no way beyond that. I, I'm not going to prescribe exactly how that looks. No, because, because I actually, I hope that he will apply the first chunk and slow down and ask the Spirit and pray over these things and ask maybe somebody very trusted and wise in your life, what does this actually look for me, look like for me? I can't really make prescriptions, and in fact, you, you really have to let the Holy Spirit do that for yourself. But consider again, what did Jesus say are the two greatest commands? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And even the fact that Jesus smooshes those two commandments together tells us that they are, they are on awfully similar footing, if not equal footing. It's as if Jesus is saying, 
the way that you love God is by loving your neighbor. Or to put it in even stronger terms, in the spirit of James, there's an old, old bluegrass gospel song with this title. If you don't love your neighbor, you don't love God. You can't have one without the other, James is saying. And who is my neighbor? What's the antidote to all of this? In other words, like how do we guard ourselves from what James, we're kind of paraphrasing, but what James basically calls um, arrogance? How do we cultivate humility in our lives? Well, James gives us two answers. He says, one, consider, and number two, confess. Consider and confess. First, he says, consider. Consider what? Consider the eternal perspective of, of all of creation. Do you see what he says? Look at verse, chapter 4, verse 14. He says, what is your life? This is where he's going to get really inspiring. You're a mist. <laughs> you are a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. And then again in verse five, chapter 5, verse 2, he, he gets at the same idea. He says, your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded, which is an impressive metaphor because gold actually can't corrode. That in the long run, none of this lasts. James is telling us the antidote to being so focused on self-preservation on our plans is to consider how small and how temporary how fleeting we really are in the scheme of eternity. Every time I officiate a funeral, I use a a very traditional liturgy and it reminds us of exactly this. In fact, when I get up, the first, one of the very first two passages that I uh, recite, scripture passages, says we have brought nothing into this world and it is certain that we can take none of, nothing from this world. We bring nothing into the, we don't come into this with anything. We just, everything we have, we receive. And we can take nothing out. It's like Doran likes to ask, you ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer? Like we're not taking anything with us when we go. And then later on in the liturgy, it says this. This is, these are my favorite, favorite, and again, this is scripture, but uh, we are mortal, formed of the earth, and to earth we shall return, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Which, by the way, is, this is just one of the, side note here, this is one of the reasons that going to funerals is so important. It's not just to console the family, although that's important, and it's not just to remember and honor the life of the person who lived, although that's important. It's really important to remind ourselves that, that in a sense, this life and this world is temporary. It gives us a very healthy perspective in life. It's at funerals that we see what really lasts. In 2015, uh, David Brooks, who's a columnist for the New York Times, uh, wrote an article where he distinguished between what he calls resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And some of you may have read this this little op-ed. It's not that long. And to borrow his language, James is inviting us to consider what's more important. What's more important? What do we pursue? Am I pursuing resume virtues that's skill at a certain, you know, my trade or my occupation. It could be social achievement. It could be a certain title. It could be a certain income level, like whatever. Am I pursuing resume virtues, the things I put on my resume to get a job, or am I pursuing eulogy virtues? Those are the things that people talk about you after you've died. 
She was courageous. She had integrity. He was kind. He loved deeply. Those things come the more and more we consider in a counterintuitive sense how temporary we are. James says, consider eternity first. And secondly, when you're confronted with your sin, confess it. Confess it. This is how he puts it in chapter 5. He says, weep and wail. Come now, you who are rich, weep and wail. That's actually, that's the only direct command he gives in all of these. There's like 14 verses here, and the only direct command he gives is weep and wail. And you think, what? I thought about titling my sermon, Weep and Wail. (laughs) That would have been too much of a downer. He's not saying weep and wail because you're nothing or because you're dirt or because you're worthless or you're not valuable. He's not saying any of that, but the reality is each of us, each of us is affected with sin. And, and there come points in our lives where we're just confronted with that. We can't, we can't avoid it. And the more we invite the Holy Spirit into our lives, actually the more we become aware of our own sin and our own brokenness. We become aware, as the old confession goes, that we have failed to love the Lord our God with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And there are times when our sin looks us right in the eyes, face to face, and confronts us, and we can, we can, we can run from it, right? We can look away, or we can justify it, and we can make excuses and rationalize it, and, or... We can admit it and we can confess and we can ask the great physician to cut that infection out of us. Now, let's be clear, that's painful. That's painful. I don't think there's any other way around it. I've never, I've never had a surgery um, to remove something exactly like that or consider maybe cancer as a good metaphor I've never had surgery to remove cancer. I imagine it's a painful surgery. And that creates its, incidentally, that creates its own wound, which has to heal. (laughs) And the healing hurts. And it takes time, and we're weak afterwards. But in light of eternity, what's better? Are you going to just keep living with it because you don't want to deal with it? Are you going to ask the great physician, cut this out of me, heal me, pain and all, but make me better? I'll tell you, uh, on a personal note, God has a really funny sense of timing. He gives us this text this week. And this week, uh, I've been confronted with my own sin in just a, a new way. And it was a way that I kind of made excuses about and justified over, over the, the past few months. And ah, it's not that, you know, I can, we reconcile it, right? It's a, well, it's okay because this, 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 and this, and this. And then earlier this week, through um, the Holy Spirit, working through my wife and through one trusted and courageous friend, convicted me and helped me to see this isn't, you can't justify this away, you can't reconcile it. So I've, I've actually felt the weight of that phrase, weep and wail. And I'll tell you, here's what I, t- and I don't say this to invite pity or anything. I, I actually say this as a form of testimony that when you're confronted with that, 
with your sin, that phrase, weep and wail, it doesn't feel oppressive. It feels appropriate. It feels very appropriate. But remember, James is all about a mature Christian faith. What he invites us to realize is that a mature Christian is not the person who confesses the least. Maybe it's the person who confesses the most. A humble Christian is not the one who confesses the least as if we have nothing to confess, but maybe the person who confesses the most. Why can we do that? We saw this just last week. Let me remind you what James says in James 4.10, very famous verse. He says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and what? He will lift you up. It's not fun. It's not easy. There's that, you know, that just gnawing feeling in your soul. It's the pit in your stomach. It's the however you want to describe it. But you like, you feel it viscerally. And we can run from it, but if we actually humble ourselves and if we follow James's injunction and weep and wail and confess our sin, what happens? We humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You feel the freedom and the weightlessness of forgiveness. That's way better than living with that gnawing feeling in your stomach. Way better. Confession and repentance are not practices that are made to help us feel heavy. They're given to us as gifts to relieve us from the heaviness and the weight of sin. James invites us to consider, how do I spend my time? How do I spend my money? And the reality is, each of us, if we take a hard inventory, will find areas where it's appropriate to confess. But when we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, he will lift us up. How does he do that? Let me just point this out, this last thing out. There's this weird verse that he ends with, verse 6. He says, you have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Now, we don't know if that's literal, if people actually had murdered people, or if it's a metaphor. We don't really know. But consider what that means for us, especially in light of the conviction of sin that God works in our lives. If somebody puts up a fight, then you might think, well, there is, there is more to it. But, but consider how crass, consider how, just how offensive it is, just how brazen, how wrong to take the life of somebody who doesn't fight back in the least. You can't justify it as self-defense. You can't, nothing. Just, just somebody who's purely vulnerable. There's probably nothing worse. Now consider that when Jesus went to the cross, he did not put up a fight. He could have called down legions of angels and smote every single person on that hill. Remember that's how they taunted him? They said, if you're really God, remove, take yourself off this cross. Get off, get down. Prove that you're God. And what did he do? Like a lamb led to the slaughter, Isaiah tells us. He did not oppose the very ones inflicting injustice on him, but he absorbed it. He absorbed the injustice, and in so doing, he absorbed our injustice, you see. Jesus himself is the one whom, in a sense, we've condemned, we've murdered. He did not oppose us. 
so that he could take that injustice and take our sin and take our brokenness on himself so that he could pay that and give us his life. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that no matter how convicted we feel, when we look at our calendar and we look at our checkbook or our credit card statement and realize, Lord, I just, I haven't. We look at our actions, whatever it is. Lord, I haven't followed you. I'm feeling this sense of conviction. I'm feeling my brokenness. I'm feeling my sin. That Jesus himself has paid that price. He took that on himself to give us life. James uses some heavy language, but he's not saying it to oppress us. He's saying it to free us. Know the freedom of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're struck um, by the fact that you let yourself be struck. That you would give yourself for us, for us individually and for us corporately, for the whole world to break the power of all sin in all the world and to restore the world to new life. So restore the world to new life. Restore us to new life. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and in our hearts as it is in heaven. Change us. Forgive us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen.